invite you to open up to the book of 1 Kings as we continue to work our way through uh, looking at the life of Elijah. And uh, in terms, gosh, I'm going to step on those. In terms of uh, Elijah in his ministry, we're at a really important crossroads for him. He has just had the incredible victory of of watching God do this amazing miracle and fire come down from heaven and devour the the sacrifice and the test of what God is real against the priests of Baal. And the king, Ahab, declared, Yahweh is God. The people that were gathered there declared, Yahweh is God. They're ready to, to turn away from Baal toward him. Elijah so stoked by all the stuff that's been going on, he runs 14 miles. Now, for some of you guys, that's no big deal. That's just another day, right? I get up, run 14 miles. But he runs 14 miles, but you haven't even heard the worst part of it yet. He runs 14 miles to Jezreel. And uh, Cindy, where'd you go? Did you run away? Would you flick that slide up and then you can... So when I tell him about how far he's going, they can be as amazed as I am. In chapter 19, it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Now the context behind the Hebrew here in this scripture means that Ahab is stoked. Ahab is like, wow, we saw the real God move. So Ahab, who is traditionally a very wicked king and serves and follows Baal for the majority of his life, at this moment, at this juncture, he's having a, a little bit of a, a deal happening within him. And he tells his wife Jezebel, who is a high priestess of Baal worship and the, really the power behind all the false worship in the northern kingdom. So he tells her, he's excited. I mean, wouldn't you be? Fire just came down from heaven. I mean, it was a visual understanding that God is real. And it came down and... And so they're, they're blown away, but then it says in verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, those priests that, that uh, Elijah had slain, by tomorrow at this time. So Jezebel, one of the important things that we want to see about Jezebel, and why she becomes an important picture in in the, the Bible, and, and particularly Bible prophecy as we come to Revelation, is because she is what Elijah is to God, she is to Baal. She's not just moderately committed like most of the people in, in the northern kingdom, moderately committed like Ahab's just happy to do whatever he wants to do. No, Jezebel is sold out to Baal. And when she hears about what he's done... Instead of, she don't care that fire came down from heaven. She don't care that Yahweh showed himself to be real and true. What she cares about is, you killed 450 high priests, so this time tomorrow I'm going to get you. I'm coming for you. And the amazing thing is, we see in verse 3 it says, And when he saw that, now depending on what translation you have, it may have a few other things. But the Hebrew of that phrase, and when he saw that, simply means that he was afraid. Why is he afraid? Well, Jezebel, this is the same Jezebel who obliterated all worship of Yahweh in the northern kingdom. 
This is the same Jezebel who had put to death every prophet she could find. Except for Obadiah hiding a hundred prophets in a cave, she would have wiped them all out. This is the same Jezebel. She, when she says, I'm going to kill you tomorrow, she's not just mad and going to blow over later. She means, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. The shocking thing as we look at this section of scripture and we talk about Elijah is what Elijah did. The Bible says that he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba. This is why I have a map up there. Beersheba is the southernmost city in Judah. So if we look, you see the top of that yellow line? It says Jezreel at one end of it. The other end says Beersheba all the way down in this lower corner. That's 125 miles. You don't want me to tell you how many hours. We're looking at just a bit over 24 hours. It's kind of an amazing run. But it makes sense when you see what the angel has to say to him when the angel finds him. He comes down and he runs for his life. Look, the scripture says, he saw that he arose, ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now here's some of the interesting pictures. Beersheba is, is the first place that Abraham would have stopped on his way to, to um, uh, sacrificing his, his uh, son Isaac. Beersheba is one of the places he stopped. Beersheba, we see Elijah come, leave off his servant. We never see the servant again, so this is the end of the servant. A lot of people associate this servant to the to John Mark in Acts when Paul got mad at John Mark and said, I don't want to take him anymore, and, and so he left John Mark behind. Maybe that's the same thing going on with Elijah. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is he leaves him, and that's it. Then you see a little arrow there by the number 8. He then takes off toward the wilderness for a whole nother day. So a full another day into the wilderness. No cities, desert. Just takes off. He just, he just running. Reminds me of Forrest Gump. Remember that scene in Forrest Gump when he gets to the point where he just says, it's time to run. And he just runs for whatever, the next 10 years or whatever. I don't remember the movie that well, but I remember he runs a lot. So same kind of thing. He takes off and he runs and, and it says that, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I find that incredibly ironic. Do you see the irony? Say so Earlier he's, he's left the area where there's maybe the beginnings of a possible revival taking place. A woman threatens him, a, a, a powerful woman who could definitely do what she said she was going to do. And so he wants to save his life. So he runs a couple of days, maybe more. Most of them say that it's just that. He comes to this broom tree in the middle of the desert, and then he prays that God would kill him. Would have been easier just to stay where you were than go through all that that was going on in his life. But listen, he is doing what we've talked about as we look at this section of Scripture and we look at the northern and southern kingdom and we look at all the different kings and we look at all the different things and choices that people made, we said every person is either going to be ruled by fear or by faith. And if you are ruled by fear, 
the things that you do are not always going to make a lot of sense. You're being ruled by fear. And so you, 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 you react through fear. The Bible says fear of man is a snare. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The concept being putting our faith and trust in God, the Lord will direct us. Everywhere until this moment, everything we've seen Elijah do was what God told him to do. Are you with me? Elijah, go down to Cherit, and the ravens will feed you there. Elijah, go to Zarephath, and a widow will take care of you there. Elijah, go tell Ahab it's going to rain. Elijah, go go and, and have this contest with the priests of Baal. Elijah, go to Jezreel. All this stuff is, is God-ordained. And then all of a sudden, Jezebel says something to him, and he seems like he totally slips out of character, and he just runs. He's not even in the kingdom anymore. He's left the northern kingdom, and he's almost out of the southern kingdom. <clears throat> so he's all the way down in the bottom, and he's calling out to God, and he's asking if God would kill him. He has been overcome by fear. Maybe disappointment. I mean, I want you to think about the height of the victory. Man is never in such a, a dangerous place as when he experiences an incredible victory and he thinks that now everything's going to change. Everything's going to change now. I mean, it's got to. Look at what God did. Look at the move of the people. Look at the attitude of the king. Everything's going to change only to find out when you get to the town where you think this incredible change is going to be taking place. It didn't change. Or at least an aspect of it didn't change. And maybe he began to fear. We're going to hear him say something. He believed that his ministry, that God was going to use him and his ministry in such an incredible way that he would be different from all of his fathers. All of the prophets who went before him. But he's going to say, I'm just like my father's. What is it that he holds in, in, in common with him? The people didn't listen. The people didn't listen. The people didn't change. He thought if only they could see an incredible miracle. And this lesson in chapter 19 that God's going to show Elijah, that's the point of the, the whole uh, uh, example the whole thing that God's going to do with him is to say, listen, you thought it was going to be in the big flash, in the big fire. That's not where it's going to be. That's not where it's going to be, Elijah. So Elijah finds himself. He finds himself all the way on the backside of the desert. Yeah, by Horeb. The Sundays in Acts chapter 7, we've been talking about Moses. You remember when Moses, 40 years old, and he killed the Egyptian, and he was trying to make peace with his brothers, <laughs> and his brothers, the other Hebrew people said, what are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses ran. What's the Bible say? To where? Backside of the desert. Where did he see the burning bush? At Horeb. Another name for that? Mount Sinai. Where the law was given. That's where God initially is going to speak to Moses and send him to Egypt. And Moses is going to bring the children of Israel back there to receive the law. Same place. We're going to see Elijah run. Right now he's under a broom tree. Sitting under a broom tree and he said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life. Listen to the phrase. 
for I am no better than my father's. I thought they would listen to me. You ever felt that way? I mean, so often, especially when I was young, and I try to guard against it now that I'm less young than I used to be, and that is when I look at other people, or I look at other ministries, and I look at what they're doing, to have a, any kind of a judgmental attitude that thinks, well, if I was doing it, it'd be different, and the, the results would be different. You see, that's what Elijah believed. He said, man, this is my time, it's my shot, it's an incredible miracle, it's incredible things are happening, everything's going to change. But he discovered what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, that the people always treated the prophets the same way. They didn't listen. It wasn't the miracle that changes somebody's heart. It's not the amazing flash. And we, we were just discussing today at the soup kitchen, we were talking about all the stuff, Jenny alluded to all the crazy things. Fiscal cliff. I don't even know what that means. <clears throat> I just know it's bad. You know, I, I, fortunately I am ignorant enough not to be as afraid of that as I am of other things. But then we have shootings in schools, we have shootings all over the place. And, and the, our government believes they can legislate and develop laws to fix that. Let me, let me tell you, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to get in a debate on gun control or anything else. But if you took all the guns away from people, they'd kill each other with stones. They'd beat each other with sticks. You cannot legislate a fix in the nature of man. You must change the nature of man to fix man. That's where the fix is. That's that relationship with Jesus Christ. Apart from that, there will be no... I don't care what they do. It might slow people down, but you know, the Civil War, we didn't have all that incredible technology, yet at Gettysburg, we were able to kill a whole lot of people. Take it all away. It doesn't matter. Cain and Abel, what did it teach us? Men want to kill. It's in their nature unless their nature is changed. Elijah says, I'm just like my fathers. I, I have failed just like them. They haven't listened to me anymore. Then he lay and slept under a broom tree. Now, it's not any wonder he slept, right? That's a lot of running he's done. Even if you dispute the amount of time, doesn't matter. I don't care how long it took you to go 125 miles. I'm sleeping too. He's under the broom tree. He's asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Now, this is where people say dumb jokes like it's angel food cake. <clears throat> and I think the illusion, or what they're, not the illusion, but what they're alluding to is that there's something special about the cake. I don't think there's anything special about the cake. I think an angel made him a cake. The word for the cake is the exact same word for the cake he got from the widow. You remember when the widow, when he asked the widow for a cake? He got a cake. It, it, there was a cake there. The angel prepared for him. He ate the cake. He drank. He laid down fell asleep again. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him. Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. And I think in that phrase, we're seeing that Elijah ran himself as close to running yourself to death as you can get. And God sends an angel to minister to him in the middle of the desert to provide for him the sustenance that he needs 
to provide for him water. Elijah didn't go pick it. He probably didn't have enough energy to get up and do anything else. And so the angel gives him. But here is what I want to see. It says in verse 8, So he arose, he ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. From where he was to Horeb, actually from Beersheba to Horeb is an 11-day journey. So it didn't take him 40 days to get to Horeb. It didn't take him 40 days to get to Mount Sinai. What it says, when the scripture says, and he went on the strength of that food, what it's saying is, that's the last thing he ate. So we see our third character that goes on a 40-day fast. Moses, I want you to think of these three. Elijah and Jesus. We see them in the New Testament, don't we? All three of them together. The Mount of Transfiguration. And one of the things they all have in common is they are all part of the 40-day fast club, if there is one. And so they together, they have this thing in common. It also is the same at that same mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses fasted for 40 days while he met with God and God gave him the law and the building plans for the tabernacle and some of the things that God was doing. And here you see Elijah in the same place. I don't, I don't believe this is just happenstance. I don't believe he just happened to be there. I believe this is all God-directed. I'm not sure Elijah knew where he was going. I think he's just running as far away from Ahab as he can get. And as you can see, he did a pretty good job. Going as far away from Ahab as he could go. He runs all the way down into the south of the land. So he's going to carry on for 40 days and 40 nights. And then we come in verse 9, and there he went into a cave. Now, the last chapter, Elijah was trying to prove to everyone else that Yahweh was God. This chapter, God is trying to prove to Elijah. I believe Elijah is frustrated. I believe he's disappointed. The same reason people are disappointed today. That the, that the wicked continue and that the righteous are, are held under their thumb or persecuted. And not understanding the bad things that happen. And just like people that read the newspaper and they see a guy <clears throat> slaughter 20 children and they say, where was your God when that happened? <clears throat> They're frustrated by the circumstances of things going on in their life. Every insurance company, when a tornado comes through and wipes out your house, what do they call it? Act of God. Not anybody believes that God sent the, the tornado, or few believe that God sent the tornado, but that's what they call it. Because they see in all those big things the hand of God. Just like Elijah. He sees the hand of God in all these big things. So he goes into a cave. He goes into the cave on Mount Sinai. That reminds me of a story. Didn't Moses also find himself in a cave? Didn't God put Moses in a cleft of a rock so that he could have his afterglow pass by him so Moses could see God? And Moses' face shone for 40 days. You, you guys remember the story, right? Moses wanted to see him. God said, no one can see me but li- and live. But <clears throat> he puts his hand over Moses and puts him in a cleft of a rock, same word for cave. We're not talking about, you know, something he journeyed down into the center of the earth. 
Just a place, a space he could lie in the rock. So there's Elijah. Man, I don't have a hard time believing Elijah's in the same place where Moses was. Elijah's struggling from a, a similar deal. He needs to see the hand of God move. He needs to see God. He needs to have uh, something happen because he's, he's really gone as far away from his ministry as he can get. There's no further he can go. He's given up. He's throwing in the towel. He'd toss off the mantle if he could. He finds himself in the cave. <laughs> he spent the night in that place. And I want you to see this. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, I don't know if you like to write in your Bible, but there's going to be two instances where God says the exact same thing to Elijah, but he says it differently. And sometimes I think we read familiar scriptures so quickly through that we miss it. So the first time it says, the word of the Lord came to him. Now that's a common phrase, right, for a prophet. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. Yeah, he's, he's kind of used to that. Came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Every other place Elijah went was by the direction of God. Now, he's somewhere outside of the direction of God. And God says to him, what are you doing here? Why are you in a cave on the side of Mount Sinai, perhaps in the very place where Moses came? <clears throat> what are you doing here? So he responds, I have been. By, by the way, that's past tense. Not I am being. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. So you see that he's in a place where he is at least contemplating giving up. I have been. I've given my whole life. You can hear it in his, in his tone. I've given my life for this. I have been very zealous. And then he goes on. Here's the problem. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Where's he, where's he lying? On Mount Sinai where they received the covenant. He's in that place. There he is. I, I, the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. <clears throat> and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. It's despair. It's despair. The scripture says, men ought always to pray. In fact, Jesus said it. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. But we don't see prayer. We see panic. We don't see the willingness to be quiet before God. We will, but we don't see it. We see panic, run, quit, I'm alone, it's too hard for me. You, you expect too much, it's too difficult. And if we'd be honest, in every ministry, in every church, in every place where people gather together to try to do the work of God, people come to that point. I bet Jenny could tell you about people who have quit, who said it's too hard, it's too much, it's too, it's too difficult. It'll be, there, there are constantly times God calls us, <laughs> He calls us to do things that are outside our own strength. If it was within our own strength, we would take the credit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do no thing. Not most things or some things. It's something that's got to be God-directed. He says, I'm alone, 
and I am left. In the cry, we hear over and over again in the Old Testament, the complaint. What's the complaint? The complaint of the silence and apparent indifference of God toward the suffering of the righteous. God, I have been zealous for you, and all I've got for my trouble is this person wants to kill me. She's killed the prophets. She's torn down the altars. Now, in that statement, do you hear, we won the battle of the priests of Baal. 400 of them were put to death. Their altars were torn down. Do we hear Ahab's heart beginning to, does he say any of that stuff? Nope. Because when you're in despair, everything looks bad. There is no good. There's nothing right. It's a mess. It's not good for anything. So what happens? So then he said, God speaks to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Think about the way that Elijah taught. He was a prophet of action. He, brought, he prayed and it stopped raining. There was a famine for three and a half years. He prayed again and it rained. A widow's son died. He prayed, laid on the child. He prayed, asked three times. God raised that child to life again. He is a man of action. The things that he does. He taught here by signs. He showed people the things that God could do. So here God speaks to him in signs. These signs pass before him in this mountain hollow. In the black and the darkness of the night, a procession of natural terrors, huge storm, an earthquake, fire. But none of these things move him. None speak to his soul or tell of the presence of God. It is the hushed voice. The awful stillness which overpowers and enchains him. He is to learn first that the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. And secondly, that it has been with him. So it will be with others. The name of the Lord will be proclaimed in a voice of gentle silence. That word, the still small voice, the Hebrew literal translation, the voice of gentle silence. It's in the voice of gentle silence. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. The judgment of God comes, absolutely. It doesn't change him. If we could legislate a change into the nature of man, the Ten Commandments would have been all that was necessary, right? 
What does God require? There's the Ten Commandments. Man, keep it? No. Does law change the nature of man? Can't. Does a miracle change the nature of man? No. It doesn't. It may show the fingerprints of God, but the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us, listen, in Luke, the Bible tells us, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if one would rise from the dead. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man will boast. The, the idea of simply being, if you can't believe the gentle silence of God, the goodness of God, the word of God, it doesn't matter how hard the wind blows, how hot the fire is, how mighty the earthquake, it will not change the nature of man. Don't you see that's where Elijah's struggle is? The nature of these men didn't change. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. It's not how loud a noise we can make. <clears throat> it's not an instrument of religious programming. It's not if we changed everything and we ran this program, or if I changed my whole eschatological view and I became something else. It doesn't matter. Those things don't change the nature of man. The centrality of the gospel is Christ crucified and resurrected. It's not all those other things. Do you know how long men can argue over the millennial? The millennium. You know where it's mentioned? Revelation 20. How many verses? One. One verse, one chapter in the entire Bible. And theologians can spend their lifetime trying to decipher which view is true. And still, at the end of time, argue about it. It's simple. You want me to tell you why it's so simple? We're not given enough information. So, you're not going to be able to stand without someone else having some type of rebuttal. Something that they can say. Some addition to the argument. <clears throat> Does it make a difference? Will your view on the millennium change? Will it, will it change who you are? Will you be a new creation in Christ Jesus because of your view in the millennium? You become a new creation because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you and I are born sinners who need to be forgiven. Who must have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Who must make Him Lord and Savior. Who must submit ourselves to the hand of God. we got to come to that place. And it's not through some magic words. We've been trying to put together the perfect sinner's prayer for a thousand years of church history. There's a little phrase in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that people just go through so fast. If you confess with your mouth, 
What's the next line? And believe in your heart. In that little phrase, (laughs) there's so much wrapped into that little phrase. It's vital that it is who we are. There's no... There's no magic words. There's no hocus pocus poof. If I say this sentence just right, then I'm saved. And if I don't say it right, I'm not. No, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For whosoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Whosoever calls, commits, entrusts, It's so simple and so complex and so important to commit ourselves to. But it's not in the crazy. It's not in the big. It's not in the the massive. It's not in the fire. It's not in the sword. It's not in the slaughter. It is in the gentle speaking in the silence to the conscience of man where God holds sway over the heart's of men when he speaks it's there it's that Elijah's thinking the change in men would happen because of this miracle he performed but it didn't and he's disappointed and he runs to the ends of the earth to quit and there God says it's not going to be in the giant miracle and the crazy thing it's going to be in the gentle silence as my spirit ministers to theirs that's where the change will occur He says this, I love this part. In verse 13, no, no commentary, he just goes to verse 13, says, So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. He took his mantle, his mantle is the thing he would wear over his shoulders, uh, animal skin, uh, fur, it marked him as a prophet. And he hides his face. When he hears the gentle silence of God, he wraps himself in his mantle. He hides his face. He's convicted. And he goes outside the cave. You remember in the beginning, the Lord said, go outside before the Lord. Nowhere does it say Elijah went until now. Not from the wind, not from the earthquake, not from the fire but from that convicting of the Spirit of God speaking to the heart of Elijah, now he goes outside. He gets up and he goes out. But I want you to see the next part. He stood in the entrance of the cave and suddenly, what's it say? A voice came to him. What came to him before? And The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here? What comes to him now? The voice. The Bible makes a distinction between the two. A distinction. The word of the Lord came to him in the beginning as it always came to him. I'm not sure how that was, if it was something he felt implied on his heart or what. But the second time, it's the voice of God. It, it, It speaks of a more gentle God reaching down to Elijah and asking him the same exact question. What 
are you doing here? Are you quitting? Are you giving up? Is it over? This is Elijah, right? The Elijah that the world, the, the Malachi said, Jesus will not come back for a second coming until Elijah comes. The same Elijah that Jesus said, that if you can handle it, John the Baptist was in the spirit and likeness of Elijah when he came. The same Elijah who almost all commentators agree will be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. The same Elijah that every single Passover they set a, t- a chair and a place for Elijah where no one sits and a child goes to the door and opens the door and see if Elijah is there. Same Elijah. On Mount Sinai, ready to quit. He's felt the conviction of God's spirit as his stillness speaks to his heart and the voice of God spoke. <clears throat> I don't know how the word of the Lord came to him, but to me the voice is like Jesus now is standing beside him and whispering in his ear. Elijah, what are you doing here? It's not where God has you. This is not where you're supposed to be. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, Elijah responds exactly the same way as he did before. With a minor, one minor difference. The tone is totally different. I mean, if I'm going to answer the question to God, what am I doing here? My answer is still going to be the same. But my tone is totally different. The answer in my tone is, I have been zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. How do I know the tone's different? Well, look at the next verse. What's God say? The Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Go. We talked in Acts chapter 7 on Sunday. I love this verse. I I don't know how long I'll be harping on it for a long time. Where God says to Moses... Remove your sandals, you're on holy ground. And he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their groanings. I have come down. And I send you. When did he say, I send you to Moses? When Moses was ready to go. 80 years old. 40 years on the backside of the desert. He didn't do it the first 40 years. He didn't do it at 78. He didn't do it at 79. When did he send him? When he was ready. It would fly in the face of everything that God's done and and that we read in the scriptures if all of a sudden he's sending Elijah and Elijah is still totally wiped out. The tone has changed. The reason he's there hasn't. But the tone has changed. Go, Elijah. It's time to go. It's time to go. What's he say to him? Listen, you're going to see the same thing. Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And you will also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, um, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet 
in your place. Now listen to this. And it shall be, whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Seems kind of interesting. It does for this reason. Elisha was a man of peace. His sword was the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It was by the breath of his lips he slew the wicked. The gentle silence. If the whirlwind or the earthquake of Hazael didn't do it, Hazael, the hand of the Gentile, he's going to come as a king of, of Syria against the people and Who's going to really anoint him? <laughs> Nobody. But God told, God told Elijah to anoint him. The word anoint means to set apart. Elijah, you're going to go back. And as you go, I want you to hear. Hazael is going to come in judgment against the people. For the things that they've been doing, the wicked will not prosper. David said, I almost lost heart, didn't he? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked until what? I went to the house of God and saw his end. Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. God says to Elijah, set apart Hazael. My judgment will come by the hands of a wicked man. The prophet that anoints Hazael is not Elijah or Elisha. It's just an unnamed prophet who goes. And the prophet weeps over all that will be killed by Hazael. And whoever Hazael doesn't kill, particularly it will be Jezebel. Jehu will. Jehu is a leader that Elisha will anoint. But is a man set apart for the for the work of God to accomplish God's judgment and direction upon the people. People always think that everybody's getting away with everything and nothing's ever going to happen to them. And God says to Elijah, Hazael is going to be the whirlwind and the earthquake and Jehu is going to be the fire. But none of those things is going to change the nature of man. I used to say, in my younger days. That kid is so annoying. You know what he needs is a good butt whooping. And if he got a good butt whooping, everything would change. That is the dumbest thing I ever said in my life. Or maybe you guys got it all figured out. I don't know. But I've seen a guy who was the most obnoxious, mean-spirited, dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing guy. And I seen one day, walking down the road, a car pulled over. Apparently, other people thought he was low-down, dirty, good-for-nothing guy. Got out of the car and beat him senseless on the road. Senseless. And as soon as he came to, you know what? He was the same person. He didn't learn a thing from his beating. If a beating worked, I'd only had to spank my children once. 
Am I saying don't spank? No. The Bible says train up a child. The Bible says if you love your child, discipline them promptly. There should be discipline in the home. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the whirlwind and the earthquake and the fire will not change the nature of a man. It is the gentle silence of the Spirit of God that changes the nature of a man. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things and there shouldn't be discipline. I'm saying they don't change. God doesn't withhold His hand of judgment, but the Bible says that God does not glory in the destruction of the wicked because when the wicked perish, where do they go? Hell. Are they saved? No. Were they changed? No. Read the book of Revelation. You think I'm crazy. Read the book of Revelation. Judgment after judgment after judgment. What's the Bible say over and over and over again? Yet they would not repent. And yet they would not repent. And yet they would not repent. I had a football player who would not listen to me. He cussed all the time. I can't stand it when football players cuss. So I'll bust them every time they cuss. And this kid, he cussed. And I said, (laughs) I won't tell you that part. I said, (laughs) you're going to run. You're going to run a mile for every letter in the word. And I'm the one who's going to spell whatever you said. So I can put however many letters in it I want. I ran him. I ran him all practice. The first time ever I ran a kid to the point he could not get up. He literally, other kids had to carry him off the field. That's how exhausted he was at the end. And when they were carrying him off the field, he was still cussing. Well, you know, if that coach would just get this under control, he'd change the nature of the kid, just make him run. Really? You have any experience? Because in my experience, if a kid wants to be ornery, wow, he can be ornery all the way to the end. It won't change the nature of a man. The nature of the man is only changed by the spirit of the living God coming into the man and changing him from the inside out. That's the lesson that God's teaching Elijah. It's the still, small voice, the gentle silence. Hazael is going to bring judgment from God. The Babylonians are going to be the hand of God against the people. The Assyrians are going to be the hand of God against the children of Israel. And when those people die, and when they perish, none of them are saved. That's why the long-suffering arm of God does not rain down judgment now. Because in God's economy, He doesn't win when people go to hell. He only wins when people are saved. That's why He said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all men. That's what changes the nature of a man. The men who would be changed would be changed by Elisha sharing the word and watching the nature of men be changed. He says in verse 18, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Remember, Elijah said, I'm the only one. God says, I got 7,000 still. I got 7,000. We think we know all the pieces. 
And we have no idea. We start to become central sometimes in our relationship with God. What's the centrality? What is it that binds us together? Is it, is it our views on all these other things? Or is it the centrality of the gospel in the relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what binds us all together. That central message, that central point. As soon as I become the central point of my gospel, everything gets out of hand. Listen, I'm here for his glory, not mine. It's for him, not me. If he's got to run me through the ringer in order for him to be glorified, praise God, do it. (laughs) It's for his glory. God is glorified. He's central. He needs to be central in the message. So the Lord reminds Elijah. Well, in verse 19, he departs from there. And he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. This is even more amazing than some of the other areas where we see the call of God on someone's life. Elisha is there. Elijah walks by and throws his mantle. That thing he wore around his shoulders. The the fur thing around his shoulders. Throws it on him and walks. He don't say a word. Throws a mantle on him and walks by. And it says, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Now, if he's got 12 oxen, he's a relatively wealthy man. He leaves the oxen, <laughs> he runs up to Elijah, and he says, please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And so he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Elijah, a lot of people go from there and say, Elijah, that's a rebuking statement. In the Hebrew, that's not a rebuking statement at all. What he's saying is Go. Kiss your mom and dad. He didn't say, let me bury my father. He said, let me kiss my mom and dad. I'm going to go kiss my mom and dad, and I'm going to leave. I'm coming right with you. So Elijah gives him permission to do that. He goes, and he kisses his mom and dad. That's all the, 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 the greeting. He runs, hey, I've got, I just got called to be a prophet. See you guys. Gives him a kiss. He goes out, the Bible says, and Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Now, he's not making a sacrifice. He kills all the oxen. He boils them. That's not ever part of any sacrifice. He doesn't build an altar. He doesn't make a sacrifice. He burns the bridges. It would be as though the disciples, when Jesus called them and said, Come and follow me, if they had walked back to the ships and lit them on fire. Elisha has nothing to go back to. He was plowing with the oxen. He burns them all. I'm not ever going back. Isn't that interesting from Elijah who was just running away to then go and call Elisha who provides this example that says, I'm never going back. He kills all the oxen and feeds all the people in the village. Twelve oxen. That's a lot of meat. That's a lot. And the, and the yokes, those were valuable. He burns them. To boil the oxen, to feed the people. Look what it says. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. He became Elijah's second. Now Elisha 
as we continue to move forward, is going to do twice as many miracles as Elijah did. That's his desire. God says, well, if you stick with Elijah until I take him to heaven, then you'll have it. Which brings us to a whole other story. Exciting. Exciting times among the prophets of God. Listen, guys. It's still the same story. God changes the nature of man based on man's relationship with the Spirit of God. With a gentle stillness. Still that way today. I've prayed for people who were sick and thought, God, if you do a miracle, it totally changed people's lives. I one time had mom and dad come into church with a little baby who needed eye surgery. And we anointed the baby with oil and we prayed for the baby that night. The next day, they took that baby in for surgery. Literally, the doctor said, who already did the surgery on this baby? Now, I'm not telling you a story about someone I heard of. This is a story. I was there. The doc said, who did the surgery on this baby? He doesn't need surgery. They didn't do the surgery. The baby still, to this day, never had the surgery. He is, of course, not a baby anymore. He's making me feel old because they keep growing and getting older. Pretty amazing miracle. Didn't keep mom and dad married. Didn't keep mom and dad in church. Didn't keep mom and dad walking with God. Because God's not in the wind. God's not in the power. God's not in all those big things. They don't change man. He's in the gentle silence of a man who sits before God and is just quiet and is still before Almighty God. And in the stillness, in that attitude of submission, God meets a man there. That's what changes men. That's what changed Elijah, Elisha. That's what's going to change our communities, our families, the people we love, our schools, the world. It's not the crazy miracles. It's that gentle silence. Amen? Well, stand with me. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you that we can come and we can read, that we can study, that we can know that you are God. Can you make the wind blow? Absolutely. You make the earthquake? Surely. Can you bring your judgment? Absolutely. One day, judgment will come. God is holy and right. But we won't see that change men. We'll just see that make men pay for what they've done. What changes a man is that gentle whisper of your spirit. What changes a man is the submission in our heart. Lord, I pray, God, that not only would we desire to see that change our communities, but before revival can move, judgment begins in the house of God. It begins with us. Am I willing to submit myself in the gentle silence of my God when he doesn't do what I want? Because if I am, it's there. God will change me. It's there he will equip me. It's from there he will send me. 
It is from there that he will change, that that revival will sweep. Lord God, you never leave us. You never leave us without a representative of you. You never leave us without an opportunity for revival. That revival comes when men and women of God come before you in an attitude of prayer and report for duty and say, here am I. And when our tone has changed, you will say, go, go. And the Spirit of God will go with us. And God will do amazing things. We think of all the incredible miracles we see, the east wind that blew the Red Sea and it parted, the the incredible miracles that we look at throughout the Old Testament. But how is it that God spoke to us in the gentle silence of a baby born in Bethlehem? That's how we'll change. So God, move. So God, do. Change us, make us tools fit for your use that your revival may come that we may be your hands and feet that we may accomplish as your remnant that which you would have done in this day and may you be glorified God may forget our names but may they remember yours forever we just pray God move in Jesus name we pray amen